This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Kate Esselin, who is an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. And also today we have the great fortune of uh, having a joint co-author podcast uh, with Dr. Uh, Maggie Liang, who is also an assistant professor in the University of Alabama at Birmingham Division of Gynecologic Oncology. And they're the authors uh, of a really impacting uh, manuscript that we will feature in the journal as the June lead article. Um, and it's titled Evaluating Meaningful Levels of Financial Toxicity in Gynecologic Cancers. So, uh, Kate and Maggie, welcome. Thank you for doing the podcast. Thank you so much for having us, Dr. Ramirez, and for uh, publishing our article as the lead article in the International Journal of Cancer. Really an honor. Absolutely. Yeah, we're excited to highlight this topic. <laughs> Thank you. No, absolutely. I really felt that this was a, a very uh, impacting article and also a very current and, and uh, a very relevant uh, uh, topic. Um, so I wanted to start off, um, you know, certainly uh, with uh, Kate. Um, and basically, you know, today there are a large number of patients who find it extremely difficult to cover the cost of their treatment. Often these are life-saving uh, treatments. So, Kate, I was wondering if you can tell us as to why you thought it was important to do this study at this time, and, and if you could just put this in context with what we know so far in the literature about this topic. Sure. So, financial toxicity is a buzz term that many people are probably becoming more and more familiar with. It's increasingly recognized and, unfortunately, extremely common adverse outcome of cancer care. The recent sort of larger systematic reviews of the literature um, have suggested that anywhere from 40 to 70 percent of all cancer patients experience some degree of financial toxicity. So in terms of, there is no actual formal definition for this, but broadly speaking, it's the sort of financial hardship and distress that individuals experience as a result of their cancer diagnosis and its associated treatment. And there are so many reasons why I think uh, Maggie and I felt it was important to do this study and many others, um, but I, if you'll humor me, I, instead of sort of listing those reasons, I'd like to share sort of one of many patient stories that inspires this work. Absolutely. Absolutely. That would be great. So I'll never forget the day that I met, uh, we'll call her patient T. Um, it was a very regular busy Tuesday, just like today, um, covering the UN Oncology Service at our large academic uh, tertiary care institution, and the residents came to find me and asked me to come see a new consult who had just been transferred from an outside community hospital overnight. She was a 31-year-old, nulliparous, very healthy woman who was presenting with several months of this abdominal distension, bloating, discomfort, and early satiety. It had sort of acutely worsened in the last week to include more severe pain associated with nausea and vomiting. So we, of course, looked at her outside hospital CT that showed this very large, very complex 17-centimeter mass and a little bit of ascites and went to see her. And in entering her room, I was immediately struck by her young age and how sort of vibrant she was instead of how uncomfortable she clearly was in the bed. And I was further sort of impressed by how articulate she was as she went through those symptoms. And she said, I knew something was wrong, but I was in between jobs. 
In fact, I just started a new job a few weeks ago, ironically, working for a healthcare company. Hmm. And, and she's super excited about her new job, her new career, but her insurance doesn't even kick in for another few more weeks. And she didn't want to see a doctor and risk the expense, and she didn't want to ask for time off in her new job. So unfortunately, clearly her disease had other plans, and she ended up in the ER and transferred to our hospital. And it was several days later after sort of grappling with the help of social work with her and financial services with her insurance company that they agreed to retroactively cover her major abdominal surgery. And she was diagnosed with an aggressive and rare ovarian cancer. And so it won't be surprising to this audience to learn that many months were spent then receiving aggressive systemic therapy that also included many hospitalizations and complex procedures to manage her disease and it's in her treatment toxicity. And of course, this 31-year-old is uniquely heartbreaking, sort of caring for her and watching her cope with the loss of so much, including her future, her career, her health, her fertility, and ultimately her life. But she was also so unfairly plagued by financial toxicity from that very first day. And what was really striking to me, because this was around the time that I was sort of embarking on a lot of this work, is just how she named it from that very first day and how it was it was front and center with the conversation. And there's so many patients who we have no idea. Um, and so that's why I share that story in, in part. Um, so yeah. in prior series and, and reviews, we know common risk factors for financial toxicity are being female, being young, um, other socioeconomic characteristics like low income, minority race, and under or inadequate insurance coverage, at least in the U.S. Um, and um, we also know, and we're learning more and more, that financial toxicity can lead to worse cancer outcomes and even worse survival. There's one series out of Washington State um, which shows this. And in our original sort of financial toxicity study, from which the work in this study um, comes from, we showed that those with high toxicity were seven times more likely to report delaying or avoiding their medical care. Mm -hmm. So that study and the one also led by Dr. Liang, who's here with us today, um, were the first two studies in the UN cancer population to describe financial toxicity. And we found that about 40 to 50% of our parents, experience, our parents, our patients, mm -hmm. experience um, financial toxicity. And so, you know, one of the primary limitations of our initial work um, at both institutions was our single institution design um, and so in the current study, we really wanted to learn more about financial toxicity. And fortunately, we both used the cost tool to measure it in our original cohorts. And so we wanted to combine our, our, our cohorts to create a larger, sort of more diverse group of gynecologic cancer patients uh, to better understand um, the, what financial toxicity in our gyne patients looks like and examine what different levels of financial toxicity might be and how it differently impacts with patients and their cost coping behavior. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much for uh, sharing that, uh, that story. And it's a, uh, it's amazing. And, and I'm sure that's not a unique and rare story. I'm sure that that is uh, happening very frequently around the country and, and equally, I'm, I'm certain that many of our listeners um, internationally are um, somewhat uh, surprised that this happens in the United States. 
So with that, I wanted to then, uh, you mentioned the, the cost uh, score. I wanted to ask uh, Maggie if she can talk to us a little bit about um, what is the comprehensive uh, score for financial toxicity or, or, or the cost score, and, and at what stage of treatment is it best to evaluate financial toxicity with this tool? Um, toxicity, also known as the cost score, is a validated 11-item questionnaire um, that fortunately has been validated in cancer patients specifically, evaluating financial toxicity. So it's 11 items that ask about patients' feelings in the last seven days. Um, and the scales from zero to 44, with zero being the lowest score and consistent with the most severe financial toxicity, and four being um, the highest or best score, indicating that there's no financial toxicity. So the nice thing now that there's a validated instrument is that now we can really study um, financial toxicity in a systematic way to then in the future inform interventions that hopefully will decrease um, this outcome in patients. And there has been some study as far as, um, you know, when the best time to screen patients is. So we've done longitudinal studies in GYN oncology specifically, and then also in other cancer types. Interestingly, um, there's not a lot of data out there right now, but it seems that with the existing resources and healthcare um, systems that we utilize, there really doesn't seem to be a lot of change mm -hmm. in the cost score over time for patients. For instance, in my study at UAB, I'm looking at patients who are starting therapy over a period of six months. So interestingly, patients who had financial toxicity at the beginning of treatment, you know, unfortunately, we're still experiencing it six months later, and those who did not have it at the start of treatment were still not experiencing it. Mm. So it really lends its fact that there's a lot of work to be done where we can improve this for patients. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, um, and Kate, before we get into like the key elements of uh, study, uh, one of the questions uh, from our uh, uh, journal fellows, uh, Alex Matambo, he's from the Republic of Congo in Africa, he asked, uh, as financial toxicity is likely dynamic over the course of the patient's illness, would it be necessary to evaluate a cost-utility analysis in terms of disability-adjusted life years to measure the health of patients over time and give a weight to years lived with a gynecologic cancer? So I think this is, this is a very good and actually very interesting question. It made me sort of think about things differently than I had so far um, in terms of how financial toxicity and dollies might be um, interrelated or used together to better understand sort of the impact of financial toxicity. So we know that in, in our studies and, and many others and other cancer patients, financial toxicity is almost universally associated with a worse quality of life or worse reported self-reported self health status. And so certainly um, as dollies are a measure of sort of burden of disease and, and, and a way to quantify uh, sort of health healthy lives lost as a result of an Ill illness, a decrease in quality of life and may impact the dolly itself from financial toxicity. And um, the sort of two ways I sort of thought about this. So is there a way to sort of use utilities to look at the impact of financial toxicity? Or alternatively, if you are doing actual cost utility analyses, looking at specific treatment options in gynecologic cancers, comparing two treatments and using dollies, um, perhaps there should be sensitivity analyses that allow for the potentially worse 
cancer outcomes or survival outcomes in patients who have increased toxicity or okay. financial toxicity. Okay. Uh, now let's get on to the uh, study design. Uh, Maggie, uh, what were the key elements for your study design uh, in this uh, manuscript? Yeah, so these were both um, prospectively collected surveys from our respective institutions, um, Beth Israel, Deaconess Medical Center, and University of Alabama at Birmingham. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, Kate and I, we have a mutual interest, and so this was a good example of collaboration after realizing that um, kind of the single institution could be stronger by putting the data together, and we had collected a lot of similar measures. Mm -hmm. um, so just some brief differences at BIDMC, the women were surveyed really at any point in treatment. So during treatment, after treatment, or even during surveillance. Um, and at UAB, it really, really captured patients when they were starting a new treatment. So it could either be for new or recurrent disease. And ultimately, we only included those who had a gynecologic cancer diagnosis and excluded those who had benign or precancerous diagnoses. Great. And, and one of the things also that I, uh, that I, want, and I want to, again, highlight the importance of these collaborations among different institutions, particularly institutions with somewhat different patient populations. Um, I also wanted to just highlight for our international listeners, we in the United States, we tend to use a lot of abbreviations. So uh, BIDMC is Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. That's the Harvard Hospital. And UAB is the University of Alabama. And of course, in the United States, you say UAB. Everybody knows what UAB is. But, uh, but for our international listeners, that's uh, University of Alabama, Birmingham. Um, so, uh, well, thank you for that. And now, um, what were the results, the main results of your study? And then we're going to go into some questions regarding some specific details. But what would you want to highlight, Kate, as the most important features that uh, our audience needs to take away from this issue of financial toxicity? Great. So, well, I think first and foremost, it's incredibly common. So 47% of patients we surveyed with invasive gynecologic cancer diagnoses reported at least moderate to severe financial toxicity. So that's one, in, one out of every two patients. Mm -hmm. And though, and about 15% of the whole cohort actually reported what we consider to be sort of severe levels of financial toxicity. And again, we were using the cost score. So the definitions for those who are familiar with the cost score were less than 26 was included anyone with moderate and severe and less than 14 was severe only. So then we wanted to understand, were there any differences in sort of the cost coping strategies that patients employ with these levels of toxicity? And so um, those with moderate and severe financial toxicity were more likely to employ economic cost coping strategies. So when I say economic strategies, I mean they were 2.7 or 3.6 times as likely to need to change their sort of routine spending habits. Mm. And um, they were over five times if they had moderate toxicity and 12 times if they had severe toxicity as likely to need to borrow money. Um, and that could be from friends, family, the bank. Um, but what was sort of most concerning is we learned that those with severe toxicity were 4.6 times as likely to report medication non-compliance um, as a result of their financial toxicity. Yeah, this is this is really, I mean, staggering that, I mean, of course, obviously, patients already have the drastic stress of being diagnosed with cancer. And then, you know, to, to hear you say that, you know, patients are having to 
change your spending habits, to borrow money from friends, that's uh, really very, very impacting and, and really highlights the importance of studying and evaluating this, uh, this particular topic. Um, wh one of the things that uh, came up in our discussions with our fellows um, in the journal um, was this point, and one of them uh, asked, that why, why do you think um, there is an association between higher levels of financial toxicity and surgery? Uh, what about uh, financial toxicity and systemic therapy as well? Yeah, that's a great question. So in this analysis, um, we looked at each of those factors as whether patients received any surgery, yes or no, any radiation, yes or no, didn't necessarily just um, characterize whether it was com combination modality, which obviously is used pretty frequently in gynecologic cancers. Mm -hmm. So looking just at the surgical groups, we actually found that um, patients who had any surgery potentially were less likely to have financial toxicity. And when Kate and I were discussing this, I think some of that may be a little bit of over-representation over potentially among, for instance, early stage uterine cancer patients who are cured potentially with surgery and have more finite healthcare costs compared to someone who's on more prolonged therapy. Mm -hmm. So in contrast to that, we really found that for patients with any systemic therapy, um, they were more likely to have the higher levels, either moderate or severe financial toxicity um, rather than no or mild financial toxicity, which really speaks to sort of the continuing and long-term impact um, that or that the financial burden of healthcare can have on these patients. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly, obviously, now as we're prolonging um, patients' lives with some of some of these, uh, obviously, no more novel uh, therapies. Um, Kate, one, one of the questions that came up, actually, this was in discussion with our own fellows here. Often, uh, as we're getting ready to uh, start the operating room, uh, they will ask, well, what's the next lead article and what is it on? Um, and one of the questions that came up in those discussions was, how accurate do you believe your estimates of medication non-adherence were? Um, you think it's possible that patients may be reluctant to report medication non-adherence? I, I do. Um, I do think it's quite possible that, that we may be under-reporting uh, this result. It's difficult to say in, you know, this research setting, you know, both institutions um, carried this out prospectively and patients were advised and counseled that, you know, uh, participation was voluntary and the survey was confidential and should not impact the care they were receiving, nor would they be identifiable. But Certainly, you could imagine patients might not feel comfortable admitting they're not taking their medications as instructed. Um, so if, if the results are inaccurate, I would hypothesize that we're underreporting um, the true noncompliance, which is, again, as you mentioned before, a little bit shocking when we know that they're nearly five times as likely to not take their medications as instructed or um, with high financial toxicity. So um, there are some other studies out there that do ask similar sort of questions around medication compliance, because it's sort of an easy measure to understand. And um, they similarly have shown higher rates of noncompliance in patients with financial toxicity. Mm. Um, so that that's my hypothesis. Unfortunately, we don't have a good sense of exactly how inaccurate our estimate might be. Yeah. Um, but I certainly don't think we're over-reporting. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, I, and I'm sure that has to be some element uh, that the patients are not fully reporting their, their non-adherence. Um, what, one of the, uh, one of the other questions that came up was regarding the type of tumor. Um, and, uh, this question was from one of our other fellows as well. Um, how, how do you explain that uh, severity of financial toxicity 
um, association with a particular type of gynecological tumor. Uh, was there an association? Is there no association? Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, um, so that's interesting question too. So in this um, group analysis, we didn't find any association with any particular um, cancer gynecologic cancer diagnosis. And I think part of that is because of how multifactorial um, financial toxicity really is. So clearly there are the treatments. So for instance, how frequent patients are coming in for treatment, cervical cancer being a great example where um, there's pretty intensive treatment even daily during radiation therapies. Um, compared to other treatments where patients may only come every few weeks. Um, and in addition, it depends, you know, whether there's an impact on lost wages, both for patients and their caregivers, and what sort of resources are available where the patient is getting um, their treatment. Interestingly, um, in the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center cohort, in their univariate analyses, they, um, they did find there, there was an association with cervical cancer. Mm. Again, a cancer we might suspect would have more um, financial toxicity just due to contents of their treatments are. Mm -hmm. And then um, Dr. Eslin or Kate actually recently um, published a crowdsourcing study evaluating um, financial toxicity in a survey of patients through um, actually Facebook and did find that cervical cancer and ovarian cancer specifically seem to have um, more financial toxicity. So I definitely think this is something that we're gaining more um, information and knowledge about as there's more studies being done on this topic. Yeah. That's interesting because that's kind of like uh, sort of hits at the uh, sort of extremes of age, uh, the cervical being the youngest and then the ovarian probably the oldest. Um, so that, that'll be interesting to follow up on that. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the other questions comes from our fellow uh, in uh, Europe. Um, I believe this one was from uh, our fellows in Austria. Um, in what ways do you believe your findings are or are not generalizable? In other words, while the two patient cohorts in this study have substantial socioeconomic and demographic differences, both were treated at high-volume academic centers in the United States. How do you think this might have impacted your findings and how applicable is this to the general population? Yeah, this, is, this is a great point and one Maggie and I did also discuss uh, somewhat extensively. So our population, um, as you can see in the paper is, is already different between the two institutions, but it is similar in that they're both big academic centers in an urban setting uh, or more urban setting. So the on the one hand, patients, at least in the U.S., opting to be treated at sort of the larger academic centers may be thought to be sort of more proactive about their care and may also have more resources. However, on the other hand, many of these institutions are also the places that tend to receive all the referrals from the most from the community health centers for the most medically and disease complicated patients who may also be socioeconomically very complicated. Um, so I do think there is a mix of patients treated at these centers, um, which makes it hard to know how it compares to other, other places where patients get their cancer care. Um, certainly suburban and more rural centers would, would have a different cohort of patients. Um, and so this is definitely something we need to understand better and do more investigation around. That said, um, uh, Maggie gave me a nice intro to the crowdsourcing study, which just, just to sort of compare to a larger, more geographically diverse group, about 50% of patients in that cohort, just like this one, reported financial toxicity. And in that group, actually, we did ask about were they getting care in an urban center, suburban or rural, and 
over 40% were getting care in urban, uh, sorry, suburban or rural centers. Mm -hmm. So that is suggestive to me that perhaps this is fairly representative of, of the total amount of toxicity in our gynecologic cancer patients. Yeah. But I do think this is an area we need to rethink about more. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and Maggie, I was wondering, um, you know, as you know, obviously we're an international journal that uh, many of our uh, listeners uh, on these podcasts are from countries where they have uh, public, free public health care. So this question uh, uh, came to us from uh, Quique Chacon from uh, Spain, and uh, he uh, asked, well, in your study, 15% of patients reported severe financial toxicity with obviously carrying a risk of noncompliance with the proposed treatment and therefore worse prognosis in these patients. So how do you think these results could be influenced by the differences in access to healthcare between uh, the different healthcare models, those uh, in countries with free public healthcare versus those that do not have access to free public healthcare? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, there has been some work done in other countries um, that do have more public health care um, developed. So Italy and Japan are sort of the examples that I was able to find in the literature, and they actually do still see a fair amount and similar rates of financial toxicity. One of the studies in Italy actually surveyed patients who were um, on clinical trial, which is another sort of interesting uh, risk factor, I guess, characteristic to evaluate, you know, clearly we know that clinical trials are really important for gynecologic care, but sometimes that can include additional travel costs as an example, maybe additional testing that's not always covered um, by the trial. And so it's also an interesting group. Um, so it does look like, you know, regardless of the healthcare systems that are in place in different countries, it's still a problem. And I think just one or two other quick things is that you know, even here in the United States, we clearly have, you know, don't have universal insurance, but insurance itself really, unfortunately, isn't completely protective given the increased trends of cost sharing. Mm -hmm. And I think also as we are having more oral therapies, depending how cost sharing here in the United States and other countries, um, how it is formed, I guess, mm -hmm. patients have more, have may have more cost sharing actually with oral therapies, which I think is interesting since there's more of those um, coming out in GYN oncology. Yeah, very interesting that, that you bring up the, the point about the, the free healthcare and that there's still an issue with financial toxicity. Um, you know, I think that now, obviously, this comes to the question as to what are we doing about it? And I think that, you know, I'd like to hear from Kate with regards to, you know, obviously you've shown patient experiencing moderate to severe financial toxicity, more likely to adopt changes, asking friends for money. Uh, including medication non-adherence, presumably because obviously this high cost of, uh, of treatment that they're receiving. Um, despite of how common this is, why isn't there more open dialogue between patients and clinicians? Uh, why do you think patients are not bringing it up? Why do you think clinicians are not asking about it? So, you know, it's a, it's a, Great question, because if anyone was having this kind of side effect or this amount of side effect from anything else we were doing, we would certainly hear about it as clinicians. So I think um, certainly that um, patients, that it's been suggested that perhaps they're concerned about the reaction their doctor might have um, if they express some financial concerns. Maybe they won't get the same recommendations or the same care. 
Um, there's also what we talked about earlier with, the, you know, not wanting to disappoint their physician or provider if they're not taking their medication as recommended. Um, however, I did, you know, we have asked and other studies have asked patients, you know, do they want to discuss costs with their providers? And in our first analysis, we found that patients with high toxicity were twice as likely to want to report discussing costs with their doctor. So I do suspect that it may be more sort of structural issues around time with the provider and just sort of like cultural like knowing how to bring up the subject with your provider that limits from a patient perspective the open dialogue. And then I think clinicians don't ask about it for many reasons also. You know, for example, I met with a patient last week who has recurrent cancer and we were sort of reviewing her treatment options and unprompted, she asked me if any of these options were going to be covered by her new insurance because she mm. had different insurance when she had her first round of treatment. And which which of these options was going to be least expensive? And I have to admit, I was totally mortified. But here I am, I study financial toxicity, and in my own institution, I've met with many of the key stakeholders who could include our social workers, our financial services folks, patient navigators, community resource specialists, all these resources we have. But I knew, as she asked me that question, I certainly didn't have any answer. And, and none of those people, I couldn't even think of one person to point her to easily. And this is coming from somebody who is now doing a podcast. Yes, that's right. So, so I think, um, and then, you know, on top of all that, of course, I'm already also thinking about how I'm behind in my day and there's another patient and, mm-hmm. and I don't have the moment to say, really, why are you worried about this? What are your concerns? What was your experience? Right. And so I think lack of time, lack of sort of ancillary support, and certainly lack of training and knowledge around cancer economics all contribute to our discomfort discussing um, and assessing for financial toxicity. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting point. And, uh, and, and I think it's great to hear that you, as obviously somebody who's led research in this, find yourself in that, in that position. And often I know that there's many of us that, that are in uh, institutions where um, often uh, physicians are told, don't talk about anything financial with the patient or don't uh, try to address costs of things. And, and, and I think that there's a lot room for a lot of room for improvement there. Um, now, May, I wanted to ask you, and, and I think you alluded to this a little bit uh, in part before, but uh, do you have a sense that the financial toxicity is worse for your first time treatment versus the recurrent disease or is it the other way around or is there no difference uh, when you're looking at upfront therapy versus recurrent? Yeah, when we looked at um, the University of Alabama cohort, because we did, um, we were able to tell if patients were on their first line of therapy versus a subsequent line of therapy. Um, We actually found no difference, which I think was not what I was, you know, hypothesizing. I thought potentially if patients were on later lines of therapy, they would have accumulated costs, et cetera. It's sort of interesting when I um, just sort of anecdotally interviewed some patients. Some of it may be patients who are on later lines of therapy have now developed some coping strategies. You know, some of them may be adaptive and some may be maladaptive, like we're talking about today. Um, So, you know, our goal really from a proactive intervention thing is, okay, if we could find proactive, you know, meaningfully positive ways for them to cope, maybe the distress that they're experiencing from some of the unmodifiable costs of treatment um, could be better um, attuned, attuned to, so given better attention. Great. 
And um, Kate, this question comes to us from Nicolo Bazzari uh, from uh, Italy, our, one of our fellows. And he asks, uh, do you believe there could be a survival difference between uh, patients in the different financial toxicity groups um, in, in your study? Yes, this is a great question. And, and really probably why we are both so interested in this work is obviously we want to improve our patients' experience and we certainly don't want anyone to experience worse survival as a result of financial distress or toxicity. Um, so unfortunately, we weren't able to measure this in our current series. But I am worried that if we had enough patients and enough fault time, we might see a difference in survival for patients with severe toxicity, certainly, but even potentially moderate and severe toxicity compared to those with low toxicity. There's one great study that was done in the U.S. in Washington State by Dr. Scott Ramsey, and, and I sort of referenced it earlier, but they used needing to file for bankruptcy as their sort of measure of severe financial distress, mm -hmm. and they showed in cancer patients as compared to other cancer patients, but in cancer patients who filed for bankruptcy compared to those who did not, they were 1.8 times more likely to die of their disease. Yeah. So this is sort of a shocking and, and terrifying result. Um, and, you know, I think it's critically important to continue to study financial toxicity and understand not only does it translate into worse survival in our gynecologic cancer patients, but why? And, and, and think about, as Maggie alluded to, you know, what sort of interventions do we have um, to intervene before it can translate into worse survival? Um, but in our study, you know, again, that number, that 4.6 times more likely to report medication um, noncompliance or non-adherence uh, in the severely financially toxic group, we do worry that that is a proxy for other inability to um, complete recommended care and potentially down the line worse health outcomes and survival. Yeah, so I think that that'll be a study that we will all be looking uh, forward to from the two of you, uh, the, 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 the next study uh, in, in, this, uh, in this series, right? Um, now, Maggie, uh, the, um, uh, one of the other questions that Ina Sibulak from Austria uh, was asking us in this study, increasing financial toxicity was associated with younger age of patients. These patients are not eligible for Medicare. Uh, treatment often impacts their ability to work. Um, so what are the strategies uh, that we are looking to explore to support these patients? Um, do you think there is a need of governmental support programs for this group of patients? I think these are a very, um, very targeted and important questions. Yeah, and I think this speaks to the different levels where we can think about intervening. You know, there's the patient and provider, which we've talked about cost conversations. There's the health system with financial navigation. But this is really speaking towards like health policies or even just public policy. So, you know, we've talked about how this can really impact patients' ability to work so they can lose wages or have decreased income. Um, and so I do think there is a role for this data to really inform improved work leave policies surrounding those with serious medical illnesses. Um, interestingly, now that we've sort of talked about differences across different countries across the world, you know, the United States notoriously has, I would say, generally, you know, worse or less work um, leave policies than potentially other countries. Mm -hmm. So that would be interesting to look at the impact of that. Um, I also think thinking to some of the stories that um, Kate has shared with us about our patients, you know, a lot of times patients um, have employer-based insurance. So if they're not able to work or keep their job, 
then they may actually lose um, insurance, which is really important as far as decreasing the amount of out-of-pocket cost patients are having. Yeah. Um, so I think those are some important things in addition to sort of the discussions we've been having about um, not discriminating patients for getting insurance based on pre-existing conditions such as cancer. Yeah. And, and Kate, you, you mentioned, um, as Maggie was uh, just alluding to, uh, you mentioned previously the, the difficulty um, of that conversation with some patients for, for various reasons. So uh, what, what do you see as the best practices for introducing cost-related conversations in uh, your routine clinical care? So, you know, I think there are many different ways to approach this. I think certainly um, if a patient is giving you hints or, or outright telling you about their financial distress, that it's appropriate to sort of follow up with an additional question and explore that a little bit further. Um, and I think ultimately it will become very important for us to ask all patients this. And I think, as I alluded to earlier, what's challenging is that we don't have a concrete way to help our patients to discover financial toxicity at this point in time in the same way we do for other toxicities we uncover. So when we ask about neuropathy, we know there are clear interventions with dose reductions and, and other medications to reduce this toxicity, but the financial toxicity problem is incredibly complex and, and can be different from patient to patient. And the solutions are far outside our, our provider toolkit. So I think what we need to all remember is that we all have difficult conversations all the time with patients and families. And that this one, I would argue, though daunting, is actually much easier. So simply asking the question, Question. Do you have any financial concerns? May actually, you might find, improve your relationship with that patient. And, and like so many of the other problems our patients face that we can't fix, we, we might not have all the solutions, but I think there is going to be some therapeutic benefit to acknowledging the problem, expressing sort of empathy, and working with your patients and their local resources to address those concerns. And I think that what we also need to study a bit more and learn more about is you know, all the sort of value-based care we deliver, you know, thinking about what interventions, and if you know you have a patient who can't come to the hospital because it causes them to miss work, or, you know, you uncover these reasons, you're going to be able to deliver more sort of high-quality value-based care to that particular patient. Um, so there are things you can do that just may not be immediately obvious. That's great. If you just know. Mm -hmm. oh, absolutely. Um, and this is the last question from our fellows, this one, uh, Alex Matumba from Africa. He asked, do you think that the results presented here could be useful for health policymakers in dealing with socioeconomic disparities in access to effective health care across communities? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, clearly we know some socioeconomic factors do play a role in financial toxicity or financial distress. Um, but sort of one interesting thing as I've learned more about this topic, as uh, Kate and I and others have been studying it, is that really um, not only are there the medical care costs, but there's a lot of other things that we're asking of our patients to comply with care. So, you know, we've talked about the time that's needed, you know, to come to treatments and the transportation. Patients who aren't feeling well due to either their treatment or their cancer itself can have a lot of caregiver needs. And so it's a very complex interplay. So I do think if through this work we're able to identify really specific sources of financial strain, both on the individual and sort of a more global level, maybe for certain cancer types, et cetera, mm -hmm. then that may help inform 
public policy, community organizations, et cetera, that, that can then kind of hone in on what are modifiable things that we can really intervene on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think if we're able, kind of like you alluded to, you know, to prove that patients are having worse clinical outcomes and, you know, hopefully not, you know, having a negative impact on their survival, but we have that concern, then we might be able to make really make a almost a business case to healthcare organizations and public policymakers that if we invest in resources, which often honestly is personnel like financial navigators or social workers mm. um, and re- in infrastructure that we may actually improve patients' clinical outcome and um, save healthcare costs. So sort of the value-based care that Kate was mentioning. Well, fantastic. And I, I really enjoyed speaking to, to both of you, learned so much, but I, I want to be respectful of your time. So I'm going to pose the last question. Um, and certainly uh, to uh, either one of you or both of you, what are the next steps in research in financial toxicity as, as you see it today? So I think we've actually touched on so many of the areas that need more investigation. Um, and I know that uh, Maggie is definitely continuing to look at this and hopefully we will do more together in the future. Um, but we are definitely we still need to understand, as Jeff described, what are the true drivers of financial toxicity? How are they different? Maybe they're different at different levels of the cost score. Um, how financial toxicity may or may not change over the course of gynecologic cancer treatment. We've talked about that. In survivorship, we know it's an issue still. Um, and what its true impact on survival and other healthcare outcomes are. Um, so in our own patient population, we're definitely continuing to look at this and patients receiving radiation treatment specifically right now. Um, we're also trying to understand patients' qualitative experience, much much like um, Dr. Liang has done also, um, but understanding really each patient's unique experience and trying to glean from that in our own institution how we can better address this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then looking at how actual out-of-pocket costs relate to the cost score, mm-hmm. um, because we know that that's a contributor, but it may not be the, the problem for every patient. And so, again, using all this knowledge, um, we're hoping to continue to develop a more comprehensive financial navigation program that might be applicable to many institutions, but where we can at least streamline our support and care for the patients and, and learn more about how do we screen most effectively for this and what specific interventions might actually bend, you know, decrease the amount of toxicity or reduce toxicity for certain subgroups of patients. And I, I do think that this study was very helpful um, in, in showing that varying levels of financial toxicity do result in different behavioral changes in patients, whether it's economic or, um, or non-adherence of treatment recommendations. And so I think that we will also learn more about who uh, at what level should we be um, using certain interventions or not? Okay, thank you so much. Maggie, is there anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is, you know, it's exciting that there's more um, sort of descriptive information about how important this is and how common it is, risk factors, but now we need to take it to the next level and really develop evidence-based interventions to help um, provide really comprehensive patient-centered care. So I would echo all of the things that Kate said, and I'm excited to continue collaborating with her. Fantastic. Kate Esselin, Maggie Liang, thank you so, so much for bringing light to this really important topic. Uh, Thank you so much for the contributions you're making. 
to the care of women with gynecologic cancers uh, by raising awareness uh, of this particular uh, subject. And, of course, thank you for submitting your article to the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer.